0: that was the week when pupils got the a-level results for exams they never sat for many their grades were down and the balloon went up and apparently to blame was a mechanized formula
1: the voters elected Boris Johnson they didn't elect an algorithm and that is where they lost the trust it was a like massive computer says no. With the GCSE results out today it got us here thinking
0: how much of our lives are becoming subject to calculations contained within microchips.
2: We just need to not see them as magical we need to see algorithms as what they are which is tools designed by humans for human purposes.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, meet your new master, Algorithm. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
2: and think about We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: I went to see him on Friday and did an interview with him. Um, so let's let's start with the big issue in front of us and the A-level grades. Um, yeah, in which, which he was absolutely categoric as we sat round on the big sofa and he said that there will be no U-turn and no change.
0: That's Stephen Swinford, Deputy Political Editor at the Times, speaking to us from the noisy Times office. The man he's talking about is the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson.
1: And 72 hours later, that policy was completely reversed. Tell me about that discussion last Friday... I went to see him at the Department for Education and I was kind of increasingly bewildered by the government's position on it. You could see the iniquities, you could see these awful videos of kids crying who had been marked down disadvantaged children in particular and they were all going viral on the internet and yet the line wasn't changing it wasn't just algorithm says no it was like computer says no for the whole of government and so I sat down and I thought maybe there's some way that they'll change the system maybe they'll move it a bit so I asked the question do you rule out a u-turn is there any chance of change here or are we this is it this is it There's not going to be any U-turn, any change. This is it. No U-turn, no change. And he said categorically, he said that there will be no U-turn. He had contempt for what has happened in Scotland, which he said had led to no checks and balances and would lead to what he described as rampant Grade inflation, and he said relying on teachers' predictions would erode the value of those degrees and of the grades. And in Scotland, he was basically saying that the grades that were being given out were worthless. What's
0: happened in Scotland is you've got a system where there aren't any controls, you've got rampant uh, grade inflation, and the fact that there hasn't been any controls, and there's been no checks and balances uh, in that system, and it degrades every single grade as a result of that, and it embeds unfairness into
1: the system and that employers wouldn't be able to rely on them. It was a, looking back, even more so, extraordinary position to have that there would be no change, that there was nothing wrong when all the indicators were that there was a huge problem. But what is
0: an algorithm? DataWiz Timandra Harkness explains. At
2: its simplest, an algorithm is really just an ordered list of instructions. So a very popular analogy is a recipe book or even a flowchart. If you look at a flowchart and say, if your answer is A, do this. If your answer is B, do that. All those are algorithms. But obviously what we tend to mean is a computer, something much more sophisticated. And it's starting to be a case of, well, what don't they do in our lives? Anything that you do with a computer or a smartphone is certainly using algorithms. You could you could treat a recipe for making omelettes as an algorithm, it's like number one, break eggs. Number two, put eggs in pan. Number three, is omelette solid? If yes, turn it over. If no, let it cook another five minutes. Now, obviously, a computer algorithm is much more complex than that, and you write it in computer code. But it's essentially that. It's do this, do this, do this. And then there may be an if this, then that. And if that, then the other. I think the thing that algorithms is really good for is that they can process a lot more information than the human brain can hold. And so things on a mass scale on a population scale, algorithms are brilliant for that because it really helps us to be able to predict what's going to happen on a population scale on a mass scale. We want to know, you know, how many pensions will we need in 20 years time for all the pensioners or how many school places will we need in five years time? Things like that. It's, really, it's very useful to be able to predict on a social scale what's going to be happening and what people will be doing. And statistics and algorithms are very good for that, actually, because it turns out that the, if you like, the more you zoom out of people, the more predictable we are. But the problems, I think, arise when you try and do that, but you try and apply it to individuals.
0: Some of us first became aware of this algorithmic mischief when the A-level results came out and thousands were machine-allocated worse results than their teachers predicted, and then had seemed likely. But Stephen Swinford has been following this story since the beginning of March.
1: It actually goes all the way back, David, to when the lockdown came into force.
0: That's when it became clear that for the first time in the modern era... There weren't going to be any
1: exams. So the government asked the question, well, what are we going to do about it? And Gavin Williamson, on the 23rd of March, wrote to Ofqual, the exams regulator, saying that we're going to need a moderated system to ensure that there is no grade inflation. So at a very early stage, one of the government's biggest priorities was to avoid grade inflation to protect the kind of gold standard as they see it of A-levels and that seemed to be prioritised above everything from what we can tell.
0: Why were they so bothered about that given that there were so many other problems for students this year?
1: I think they were worried that this government is supposed to have kind of real rigour for A-levels, and they were worried about what had happened to GCSEs in the past, so they wanted to weirdly treat it like it was any other year and for the exam results to be as similar as possible. And this is all the way back in March, so they had months to come up and devise this now infamous algorithm and to get it right, and they obviously failed totally to do that.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering... The thing that has struck me is that, and we can all imagine what we would do if we were Secretary of State, but what I thought I might do if I was Secretary of State is say to them, have you modelled this through previous A-level results? And if you have, where are the problems? Where can we expect the difficulties? Where are the things going to turn out that people don't necessarily expect and don't want?
1: And the answer to that, they seem to have been completely blindsided by one of the biggest inequities in this model, which is the fact that if you had a small class size, so less than five, it went entirely on teachers' predictions. And if you had a class size of between five and 15, teachers' predictions were part of the picture. If you had a class that was over 15, then teachers' predictions weren't taken into account. It was based entirely on results in previous years. And that simple issue meant that the whole system was rigged in favor of private schools because they are the ones with the small subjects like latin languages things like that and they are also the ones that can afford to have the small class sizes so it meant that for everyone else the algorithm was completely arbitrary
0: now so in those months leading up to um last week Was there no process whereby the Department for Education and the Secretary of State had said to Ofqual, you must have modelled this, where are the problems?
1: So the Gavin Williamson argument, we are in the grips of a massive blame game that is going to go on for months. But he says, every stage of of this progress, when we've been talking with Ofqual, who consulted publicly on this
0: system, is hammering home... The simple message that we do not want to see a system where those children from the most disadvantaged backgrounds are disadvantaged as a result of this system.
1: I repeatedly asked Ofqual for assurances that there were no unfairnesses in this and they said that they weren't. They said it was fine. And he says that Ofqual has questions to answer over that. Now, you talk to people over at Ofqual and they say, look, there were issues and they were discussed and we're not going to get to the truth of that until we start seeing the minutes of the meetings between the Education Secretary and Ofqual, which is exactly what Robert Halfen, who's the chairman of the Education Select Committee, is calling for. We need to have greater transparency to understand what has gone wrong with this because otherwise it could happen again if we get a second wave and there's another issue like this
0: so if i understand you correctly the secretary of state has been saying i asked off qual and they said no no problems at all don't worry about it And Ofqual are replying, actually, there always were some problems, and we discussed some of them. I mean, it sounds like, actually, the problem is that we're getting a full story from, if you like, the political side of this, but it's actually rather more difficult to reach Ofqual's side of it.
1: That's a very accurate description. So you've got Gavin Williamson doing a tour of the broadcast studios. When it became apparent that no, despite the actions
0: that we had already taken in terms of working with Ofqual, well, in terms of getting the reassurance, the absolute reassurance from, um, you know, those involved in the system, who in developing it, that this was a fair and the most robust system that we could have.
1: Very heavily shifting responsibility onto Ofqual, and Ofqual is one of those bodies you're hearing nothing from it, because who is fighting for Ofqual? Who's Fighting their case here. So at the moment, it feels like the traffic is almost one way. But Gavin Williamson has not got off scot-free here, David. I mean, he is in a lot of trouble over this and his credibility is in tatters after this.
0: So you encountered last Friday a man who was utterly certain and seemed determined to convince you of his certainty.
1: He was utterly determined and his biggest concern was grade inflation. His biggest worry was that if you move to predicted grades there are going to be huge issues over that and his focus on Friday was on getting the appeal system right. He wanted a kind of Rolls-Royce appeal system that would mean that no kids were disadvantaged but obviously that didn't seemed to accept the huge inequities that were within this algorithm that were taking place across the country and all these tearful kids we were seeing everywhere.
0: So over the weekend, it became clearer to me that there were uh, a level of uh, uh, the number of students who were getting grades that, uh, frankly, they shouldn't have been getting and should have been doing a lot better. And the evidence, both from Ofqual and other external bodies, uh, was... Uh, apparent that action needed to be taken and as of this week all of a sudden he is saying no we had to take firm action in contradiction of everything that I told you and as soon as I realized that everything I told you couldn't hold or they don't put it this way then I moved very very quickly to reverse myself 180 degrees
1: And that claim is coming under some scrutiny. So, as early as July, the um, Education Select Committee was warning that disadvantaged students could be marked down under this algorithm system. And certainly by Thursday, it was very clear that was the case. On Friday, it was very clear that that was the case. Gavin Williamson says that he only became fully aware of the inconsistencies in the model over the weekend, which does lead to very significant questions that Tory MPs across the piece are asking as to why this wasn't seen sooner. I mean, people were talking it before the U-turn that this is like the poll tax. This could be a huge issue for us unless we resolve it. It's a fundamental unfairness that suggests that the government is levelling down the country, favouring private schools, rather than levelling up, which is supposed to be the Prime Minister's mantra.
0: Now, one of the peculiarities of this situation is the sudden intervention onto the political scene of this thing called the algorithm. Do you think that Gavin Williamson fully comprehends what an algorithm is and what it does?
1: I don't know how much of a grasp of the detail he has of the algorithm. Um, And I'd also say that with this algorithm, it is incredibly complex. Paul Johnson on our pages had a good look at the 300 pages of technical information that had gone into the algorithm to try to decipher it. And even he, who's one of the country's most preeminent economists, admitted that he struggled with it. It is a dense document. But if anyone had gripped it, if it had been looked at properly, there's no doubt that they would have seen these inconsistencies in it. It's there in black and white that small class sizes will benefit more from teachers' predictions and that larger classes won't. I mean, that is pretty clear. And and if he'd seen that, then he should have acted sooner. and, And that failure to do so has cost him dearly.
2: Most politicians are not from a scientific background and don't necessarily know a lot of statistics and maths and and how to use data.
0: Timandra Harkness is the author of Big Data Does Size Matter?
2: And let's face it, I mean, data science is a relatively young discipline. But, yeah, I think it would be really good if more politicians... Understood data, not necessarily that they could write computer programs themselves, but just have a bit more of a realistic sense of how it works and the fact that every algorithm and every data bank is put together by a human being. So even if they can't actually read the code and say, Oh, I see what they did here on line 2037, they could actually just say to the people who did write the code, Well, what assumptions did you program in? What was your starting point? What are you prioritizing? When you tested this, what did the results look like? Because now the A-level results algorithm has come out and been made public. People are pointing at it and going, well, this is crazy because when you tested it, it was quite inaccurate for individuals. Did that not worry you? And also, when you tested it, you tested by feeding in part of the result of the test that you were doing. And you really don't need to know any maths to look at that and go, I don't know, is this really good enough? Is this what we want from this?
0: Do you think there's any element of the government, particularly one that has Dominic Cummings in such a significant position, being slightly dazzled by the term algorithm and having an imagination about its sort of incredible potential?
1: We all know that Dominic Cummings is very interested in super forecasters and wants to improve the use of very complex algorithms and computer programmes in government to get better results, right? And that is something he's trying to embed across government.
2: I did a radio programme that I inherited from a pitch written by Dominic Cummings five years ago. And part of the premise was that politicians and policymakers need to know a lot more about data and algorithms and prediction. So I looked at what Dominic Cummings had written and said and thought about this. He was saying it's terrible that the government is full of humanities graduates and we need more people to understand maths. But he himself was a history graduate. So I thought that was really interesting that he was another humanities person kind of saying, Well, you know, I'm very clever and I've studied history, but I still don't really know necessarily what's going on and what's going to happen. Maybe if I get some really clever maths people in with their computers, they can tell me. And I do think there's quite a lot of that. And instead of looking what algorithms can actually do for us, what we wish that they would know because we don't know it ourselves, we want the algorithms to predict things because we find the world too unpredictable.
1: I think there is obviously a place for it and you wouldn't have the biggest companies of the world being companies that specialise and use these algorithms for good reason there's no reason why good algorithms couldn't be used and if you get the right people to use them they work it's just a question of whether Ofqual was competent in creating that algorithm there was an issue where the Royal Statistical Society offered its help and support to Ofqual in helping to construct that algorithm and Ofqual didn't accept that support which seems utterly baffling in hindsight and the kind of scale of the issue here so it is an example regulator but obviously the issues with that algorithm and getting that algorithm right you'd have thought they'd be asking for all of the support they could get with that
0: so do you think this marks a really important moment if you like in the forward use of algorithms in government
1: i think it does i think they will come under huge scrutiny if they're used in future and I, i think the other thing that it reflects is the need for political grip so clearly there has not been sufficient political grip here it's one thing for gavin williamson to say well look I asked off quote, what the issues were I was given assurances as they were there but others are pointing out that well actually you should have interrogated it you should have made sure that you'd gone through that algorithm and there was a lack of grip here so regardless of the algorithm the problem should have identified earlier and that's come back to bite them and I think going forward whenever there's contentious stuff they are going to be copper bottoming everything it'd be really interesting to see how the reopening of schools plays out because if that doesn't go to plan Gavin Williamson's career is toast so there'll be a a massive scrutiny over that now as well so i think the lesson is that an algorithm is absolutely no replacement for a minister taking political responsibility over something
0: in other words it wasn't me it was my algorithm is not an argument that's really going to run um, and do you think it means that in the future ministers are going to have to be much much more familiar with how these things are constructed and what they actually mean than possibly they have been in the past.
1: Absolutely. One former Secretary of State I was talking to today was saying, look, if Michael Gove had been Education Secretary, I have no doubt that he would have been in the weeds of this algorithm. He would have been going through the 300 pages in massive detail. And there's a real question of whether that happened here and whether that was actually looked at. So I think it's it's not just government that needs to change, but it's ministers that are going to need to change as well. In this blame game that we're getting, really interestingly, we've also heard at The Times that Jonathan Slater, the permanent secretary of DfE, is to be ousted. Now, we put this to DfE and they denied that he's going, but our sourcing on it suggested that he is, and that to some extent, as the blame game is played out, he could go. So you've got this position of who is responsible here? Is it Gavin Williamson? Is it Ofqual? Is it the algorithm? Is it the permanent secretary at DfE? The lines of accountability are all over the place at the moment.
0: Maybe once they've all resigned and they've all gone, all that will be left will be the algorithm.
1: <laughs> the algorithm lives on. It's a shame we can't interview the algorithm, David, but there you go. <laughs> now,
0: excuse me, Al, <laughs> Mr. Gorithm. Yes. Meet your meet your new minister, <laughs> Albert Algorithm. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Author Timandra Harkness went on a quest a few years ago to look at the use of data and how it's affecting public life.
2: I just felt maybe it was a bit of hype and that people were looking to data. There's some magic oracle that was going to solve everything and answer all possible questions. It just seemed to have plugged into this need in society to have something that was cleverer than us that would somehow tell us the answers to everything. And of course, that is one thing that it can't do because all data and all algorithms are all written, collected by human beings. And so ultimately they have all the faults and the incompletenesses that human beings have. And they have great failings when it comes to predicting the behaviour of individual humans in particular. So I was left kind of thinking, like, is it too big for its boots or is it not big enough? And I ended up kind of thinking, well, a bit of both, really, that it overclaims in some fields. And in other fields, we could be doing a lot more with it.
0: Data can be used in all sorts of algorithms. And the cliche is that it's so valuable, it's the new oil. But where is it most powerfully being applied?
2: So, for example... There's this phrase at risk. You say, oh, you know, this person is at risk of I mean, you know, at the moment, obviously we think about it medically, but often it's used socially. You say that this person is at risk of becoming a criminal, for example. And we tend to think of this as an intuitive way, that that means that they are going to school and there's somebody at the school gate who is trying to recruit them into a gang. But actually, it usually means a statistical thing. It usually means that, well, statistically, more people that, whatever, live in this postcode, go to this school, have parents whose life experience is similar to this person's parents, more of them than another type of person currently end up turning to crime. And that's where I think it's very difficult because you can look at an area and say, this area has a problem and we should do something. And maybe we should look at what's happening in the school or maybe we need to police it differently, whatever, whatever. But if you start looking at individuals, you're kind of looking at predestination. You're kind of saying this one individual person is 30 percent likely to turn to crime and therefore we are going to offer their family non-negotiable support from social workers, which is an actual thing. It's I've read <laughs> government documents. They go, "Oh, you know, these families are at risk of this terrible outcome, so we're going to offer them non-negotiable support." You think you've just basically you've run an algorithm, you've pointed to these children and said. You are fated to turn to crime and that's why we're going to send a social worker into your house, whether your parents want it or not. And that's the kind of thing where I think you have to remember that there's a big difference between looking at big social trends and seeing if there's anything we can do on a policy level about those things and then pointing to individuals and saying you as an individual are this percentage likely to do this thing And we're going to treat you as if you are. And then, you know, you'll get treated differently. And there's very little sense that you yourself have any agency in the world, have any capacity to do something differently from what other kids in your school have done or what your parents did or anything like that.
0: Predictions of possible criminality aren't the only area of our behaviours that an algorithm might be used for. How, for example, about love?
2: Dating apps use algorithms, yeah, so you might put in your preferences and what you're looking for and something about you, but a lot of dating algorithms don't simply take your list and match each other people's lists and try and line you up. It's often more complicated. They might look at your behaviour. So they might say, okay, well, you've put this in as what you want, what you are looking for, but actually we've noticed that when you scroll through the pictures, the ones you look at for longer are these ones. And so we're going to feed that in. Or even more likely, well, people like you who are maybe your age group or whatever other things you put about yourself tend to have more successful dates for these kinds of people. So we'll show you more of these kinds of people even if they're not particularly the kind of people you would actually normally prefer to date. But we're going to show you those because statistically in the past, people like you have dated people like them. And of course, I mean, these things have consequences. You might find that you do end up going on a date with somebody that you wouldn't normally think of. And you find that they're really interesting. And so you have a lovely relationship that you wouldn't already have had. But You also might find that there is somebody on there that you would have got on well with, but the algorithm has decided that the statistical likelihood of you getting together with them is too low, so they never showed you their picture. I think it would be a mistake to say all algorithms are evil and we must never use them, because they can be really helpful, they're certainly very helpful on a big population scale. They can save a lot of time and trouble on an individual scale. I think the problem arises when we forget the limitations that algorithms have. We forget that they will basically do exactly what we tell them to. So sometimes we forget who has programmed this algorithm, who's made it, why are they using it, what have they programmed it for? So I think we just need to not see them as magical. We need to see algorithms as what they are. And a lot of them are really good tools and really clever. Algorithms can do amazing things for us, but we always have to remember that they're just tools designed and used by humans.
0: What are we to make of this rather catastrophic encounter with Big Owl? Probably that we're developing some incredibly powerful tools to guide us through this complex world. But even the most sophisticated tools are no better than the hands that wield them, as true for a sledgehammer as for an algorithm. The careless worker can do a lot of damage with either of them. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, the author Timandra Harkness and the deputy political editor of the Times, Stephen Swinford. The producers were Edward Drummond and Poppy Damon, sound design was by Weidong Lin, and the music was by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. Tomorrow on the podcast, part three of Who Killed C.J. Davis, our ongoing investigation with The Times crime reporter John Simpson. You can catch up with episodes one and two by searching for Who Killed C.J. Davis in your podcast app, where the series is also available on the reporter feed. See you again soon.